When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 92, The Navy's The Thing. Last time, King Edward VII had just died in May of 1910, and his son George V now sat on the throne. The liberals had gotten the majority of their reforms passed and, at the same time, severely weakened the House of Lords. During their People versus the Peers campaign, the Irish MPs sided with the left, which made victory possible. But in return, they wanted the Irish Home Rule Bill brought back to the forefront. However, as things stood now, the country, politically speaking, was far too weak to deal with this explosive topic. It wouldn't take much for careers to be ruined or for blood to flow in the streets. No one wanted to discuss Ireland or Ulster right now, especially Winston. As the smoke cleared from this latest battle, everyone knew that Churchill was due for a promotion, and he let it be known that he would either take the Admiralty or the Home Office, and at the time, only the latter was available. So, on February 14, 1910, he became Home Secretary, amazingly at age 35. Winston was well on pace to becoming Prime Minister. And although his annual salary was now 5,000 pounds, his workload was staggering. He was responsible for millions of factory workers and miners. He oversaw national security in the form of Britain's police force. And coming down from this height, he was even responsible for centering stage plays and regulating Italian organ grinders. In essence, everything that had to do with life in Britain. And at the end of each session of the House, he had to write up a report of what was discussed and voted on and send it to the king. And Winston enjoyed the power, particularly the ability to help those that needed it. Soon proposals from him set the hours of shop workers and raised safety standards for the miners. He also helped Lloyd George with his National Health Insurance Act and dealt with one aspect of British life that brought back a painful memory for him. In dealing with the police, he had to oversee the regulations of those they pursued. And here, his time as a POW in Pretoria made him focus on the rougher elements, as opposed to the men in uniform. Quote, plenty of books, that's what I missed most, unquote. And he assumed these men would feel the same way. In short, he wanted criminals locked up, but not treated like animals. 
They had to have some amenities. Quote, except, of course, the chance of breaking bounds and getting out of the damn place. I suppose I mustn't give them that. Unquote. When Violet Asquith, the Prime Minister's daughter, said she would prefer hanging to a life sentence, Winston shook his head. Quote, never abandon life. There is a way out of everything except death. Unquote. So, it should come as no surprise that the least favorite part of his new position was signing death warrants. This would give him nightmares. That is, except when he signed off on Dr. H. H. Crippen's existence. This man dismembered his wife and ran off with his mistress. On the morning Crippen was executed, Winston enjoyed a champagne breakfast. But at the beginning of his time as Home Secretary, much Churchillian ink was spilled over changes in the penal system. After visiting several penitentiaries, he abolished flogging, started lectures for inmates, and had libraries opened. But as to who made up most of the inmates, the truth shocked Churchill, who was obsessed with cutting government waste and respecting the human condition. Of the 184,000 prisoners in British cells, more than half of that number were being held for debt, a crime supposedly no longer sufficient to hold someone. Another third were being held for drunkenness, not for what they did while being intoxicated, but for being intoxicated in public. As Winston saw it, quote, a vicious system of credit based on no real security is increasingly involving working class families in domestic disputes, extravagance, embarrassment, and ultimate disgrace, and is sapping thrift and honesty. Unquote. One could only imagine what Churchill would make of today's credit card debt in the Western world. And into this inconsistent and heavy handed arena swooped down Winston to remake the world of the convict and constable. Of the 96,000 debtors being held, Winston employed a certain amount of time for them to repay their debt and release them. Their numbers dropped from the almost 96,000 to just over 5,000. Of the 63,000 drunks wasting time and taxpayers' money, their numbers soon dropped to just over 1,500. And in combining his care for women while removing the suffragettes, from their self-chosen occupation of martyrdom, many of them were released as well. Those that remained locked up due to the violence of their actions were allowed to wear their own clothes and receive food from the outside. Prisoners? Yes. Victims of further abuse? No. In some cases, Winston let the better nature of his angel get the best of him, and the people he released soon found themselves back in prison. The Tories attacked Winston for this, and where there should have been hails of support for the Home Secretary, there was only silence from the left. Why was this? Because in some ways, Winston had worn out his welcome. The Liberals had never really embraced Winston's political change of heart, but had welcomed him and his popularity at the time. But as the months went by, some of the Liberal Party did not see a true Liberal standing before them, and remembered he was, after all, born into a certain class. And really, could he or anyone ever leave it? The word aristocrat was bandied about, and the inflection was not respectful. The question was, did Churchill really change, or just win a fight the Tories had started with him?
Was his policies meant to lift up the masses, or did they have a ring of paternalism? And did he, of the upper strata, know what was best for them? For many of the left, once the ambiance was over, what it came down to is where Winston came from. In other words, Winston and Lloyd George could have given the same speech, used the same words, but they would have been heard or received differently. The sum total of this is to say, the different classes seemed natural and not altogether unpleasing to Winston. Had he been born near the bottom, he may have become another Lloyd George, a true liberal. But he wasn't, so he wasn't. The other reason for Winston's slide in support was practical. When he started out at the Board of Trade, his celebrity went with him, and this helped disputing parties accept his word. But now, with the great battle of capital versus labor so enjoined, and really never to stop from this point on, Winston, ironically, being a moderate here, because he was born amongst the capitalists, but saw the reasoning of the labor, was left standing alone. Both sides wanted him to join their side and lead the way to a complete victory. Winston knew this was not the best answer, but simply couldn't give up who he was to manufacture a lie and still be able to look in the mirror each morning. So, with hindsight, there was no way he could succeed at the home office. And as events played out with the ongoing battle between the haves and the have-nots, Winston's celebrity, come distrust amongst the liberals, put him in a situation he could not win. In November of 1910, over 20,000 coal miners went on strike in South Wales. Violence erupted, and the local law enforcement asked for help. Winston knew it was a bad idea, but he had been officially asked and had to do something. So, keeping the numbers of soldiers as low as he could, they were sent in to assist the police. Skirmishes ensued, and two miners were killed. Exactly no one was happy with the results, and everyone blamed Winston. The Tories claimed troops should have been sent in earlier to avoid the looting. The Liberals complained they shouldn't have been sent in at all. In early 1911, another crisis at home took place. But again, Winston, for the vast majority of the Tories and Liberals, could do no right. Latvian anarchists, who had fled from Tsar Nicholas's Okarna, or secret police, had come to London and joined their fellow countrymen in their organized crime associations. These men had earlier killed three policemen, but were now trapped at 100 Sydney Street in Whitechapel. The Bobbies asked for assistance, and Winston agreed, in the form of Scots guards from the tower. But Churchill was never a good wait-and-see kind of person, and soon took a cab to the scene. Quote, I thought it my duty to see what was going on myself. I must, however, admit that convictions of duty were supported by a strong sense of curiosity, which, perhaps, it would have been well to keep in check. Unquote. When Winston got out of the cab, the soldiers were exchanging gunfire with the foreigners. The police were further back, their guns obsolete Morse tube rifles. Churchill knew he made a mistake the second he took in the scene, but could not now leave with thousands of bullets being exchanged between the besiegers and the besieged. Falling back on his military experience, he could see that the current situation held no outcome. 
It would be best if the soldiers ran straight at the house, knocked down the front door, and charged the steps, their guns blazing. But surely many would die. This, of course, was unacceptable. Perhaps if the lead man or men carried a large sheet of metal in front of them. But after looking around, nothing like that could be found. But at that moment, Winston's idea of the tank had formed. Suddenly, smoke appeared from one of the windows of the surrounded house. The firemen came forward, but the police would not let them get close enough to engage the fire. Everyone looked to the home secretary. Winston decided to let the fire go on. Quote, I thought it better to let the house burn down than spend good British lives in rescuing those ferocious rascals. Unquote. So everyone waited for about an hour, and then Winston stepped into the street and waved the firemen to follow him. They started working on the flames as policemen followed Churchill to the front door. The only thing they found inside were the charred bodies. Again, everyone found something that they disagreed with on how Winston handled the situation. The poor folk in the area who lived with these criminals blamed him for letting them into the country in the first place as the government had not restricted their entry. Balfour, a conservative in the House of Commons, said, quote, I understand what the photographer was doing, but why the Home Secretary? Unquote. The liberals were troubled because this latest Churchillian escapade had nothing to do with their slogan, peace, retrenchment, and reform. When one of Winston's friends returned from a holiday, he found the Home Secretary so shaken up that his lisp had returned. But the friend could not resist, quote, What the hell have you been doing now, Winston? Unquote. But Churchill replied, quote, Now, Charlie, don't be croth instead of cross. It was such fun. Unquote. And maybe that was part of the problem. But it only got worse for Winston. Later that summer of 1911, one of the hottest on record, longshoremen in Southampton went on strike and were soon joined in support by transport workers. But unlike before with other strikes, this one was felt almost immediately. As food was always being brought onto the home island, this work stoppage severely affected the influx, and thus famine was now a very real danger. On August 9th, the London meat and fruit markets were forced to close down. They literally had nothing to sell. Soon after, sensing their time had come, the railway men started their own national strike. Asquith tried to step in and told the railway men he would set up a royal commission to hear their grievances. But he was turned down. Between the heat, the lack of food, and the overall growing tension, violence broke out. Soon the Tories were shouting for Churchill to send in soldiers, and their pleas were soon joined by George V. But Winston stuck to his guns, or rather, refused to use guns. Enforcement of the law was the job of the police. Let them bring on whatever help they needed, but the responsibility belonged to local law enforcement. This attitude was not unappreciated by the moderates, and some on the left. The problem was, progress was not being made. The central question during all this was, could the Home Secretary send in troops without officially being asked by local authorities? Up until now, the answer had been no. But Winston decided this impasse was unacceptable. On August 19, 1911, he declared, quote, 
the Army regulation, which requires a requisition for troops from a civil authority, is suspended. Unquote. He then called up 50,000 troops to ready themselves to head for the most troubled spots along the coasts. Asquith let Churchill have his way, but Lloyd George decided to offer up a carrot in contrast to Winston's stick. The Chancellor of the Exchequer went to the railroad employers and asked them to talk with the workers' union. The only other choice was violence, and probably destruction. Destruction of their property. The owners gave in. So, the largest of Britain's problems was over. Not that it mattered in Winston's case. The left trusted him even less now, considering him a conservative. The Manchester Guardian now turned on the Home Secretary, whom they had praised up to this point, for all his efforts, and the many people who had been helped by Churchill's previous proposals that he had pushed through the House, collectively forgot everything he had done for them. But taking a step back, Churchill, as the Home Secretary, was just a small piece of the changing political landscape of Great Britain. In William Manchester's words, quote, Enemies were implacable, friendships became exhausted, reservoirs of goodwill drained, public men used up. Unquote. Clearly, Asquith needed to make a change. Winston was not working out in the Home Office. Equally important, a man of his talents was needed elsewhere, because Kaiser Wilhelm was making a nuisance of himself. Churchill had met the Kaiser in September of 1906, when he was the undersecretary at the colonial office. He had obviously made an impression, as he was invited back by the Kaiser, to watch German maneuvers in 1909. Soon after, Winston wrote an aunt, quote, I am very thankful there is a sea between that army and England, unquote. But going beyond that, Winston could not fathom a war between the two powerful modern armies. The carnage would be horrendous. And like many men who have seen battle firsthand, the idea of a future contest did not fill him with relish. On May 13, 1911, he expressed his views to his king, who agreed with taking the high road. Quote, Mr. Churchill thinks that Your Majesty's references on Tuesday next to the German Emperor will be very warmly welcomed by the peace party in the country. Unquote. But in less than two months after this, Winston would become the hawk that history remembers. And like at the height of his political life, this too was in response to German aggression. By the time Germany was ready to seek its own colonies, the game was almost over. But to keep the peace, at least in North Africa, Germany and her rival, France, decided they would both stay out of Morocco. But French troops were always crossing into Morocco from French-controlled Algeria, chasing bandits. Eventually, they decided to stay there in the name of peace. Morocco came under the sway of France. The Kaiser knew this would happen and complained bitterly. He also knew that the French would not leave in response to his royal grumbling. He just wanted a point of contention, a bargaining chip, if you will. So when he made his move in the Congo, France would have to accept, as Germany did with Morocco. But a part of his bluff against France was to send the gunboat Panther Dagadir, a major Moroccan port city, on July 1st, 1911, 
And this may be hard to understand through today's eyes, but at the time, this was seen as extremely aggressive. There was an exact protocol to these things before the Great War, and the Kaiser had shown himself the potential enemy to peace and to all his neighbors. But there was another consequence of the gunboat, or rather, a consequence that led to many more consequences, which helped create a climate for the beginning of the deadliest war the world had ever seen. While France and Germany were hotly debating North Africa, and so thus distracted, Italy invaded Tripoli. Certain oppressed groups within the Balkans saw this and decided that if Italy could stand up to the Turks in Tripoli, they could do the same in their region. This set up the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913. A result of these battles was the rise of the Serbs, which Austria-Hungary feared, and the Russians made worse by siding with their brethren in the region. Potential Russian intervention in the Balkans vexed the Habsburgs in Austria and their ally, the Germans. And the Kaiser, the leader of the Second Reich, who had worked so hard, like others before him, to bring Germany together, was not going to let his cousin, Tsar Nicholas, send his millions of men against the German people. To the Kaiser's way of thinking, perhaps a preemptive war against Russia was the only answer. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Throughout Europe, the tension increased due to the Panther, the Balkan Wars, and fear of not being ready for the next conflict. Arms merchants started receiving unheard of orders. Lloyd George, like Churchill, had had a veil removed from his eyes by the Germans. He wanted everyone to know that he may have been pro-Boer, but that did not mean he was anti-war, especially if Britain's way of life was in the balance. But Winston was going one step further. He wanted Britain to join in an alliance with France against the growing power of Central Europe. Quote, if Germany makes war on France in the course of the discussion, or deadlock, we should join with France. Germany should be told this now. Unquote. And perhaps feeling out of his depth, contemplating a general European war, Asquith added Churchill to his cabinet's committee of imperial defense. Winston gladly agreed and went on to say on August 30th, 1911, 
that Britain should consider joining with Russia and France in, quote, a triple alliance, unquote, to guarantee Belgium's frontiers, defend Antwerp, and ready a blockade of the Rhine. Then, being more precise, Winston sent to the Imperial Defense Committee a note that when he wrote it, accessed the greatness that some believed he owned. He predicted on August 23, 1911, that if the Triple Alliance was realized and Germany and Austria-Hungary attacked it, by the 20th day of the conflict, German forces would break through the Meuse. The French forces would be forced to fall back on Paris, and by the 40th day, even though the Germans would be doing well, would now be extended almost to the breaking point, and that France would have to make great sacrifices and endure heavy casualties, but could hold them back with British aid. Many high-ranking officers snickered at Winston's memo, but it must be remembered that the Germans were pushed back during the Battle of the Marne on day 42 of the Great War. But all this is hindsight. At the time, Churchill was still being bruised from the right and from the left. Asquith didn't mind Winston's memo. In fact, it may have been the deciding factor for a change in his cabinet. The Home Office needed new blood, but so did the Admiralty. The current First Sea Lord, Reginald McKenna, couldn't even manage his own immediate subordinate, so how was he to fight off the Germans? No, it was time for a change. So Winston was invited to Archerfeld, Asquith's Scottish estate, in September 1911. There he was offered the Admiralty, and he could not have been happier. Jumping into his new red napier, he went up to gather Clem, but before meeting his wife, he met Asquith's daughter, Violet, told her the great news, and then said, quote, Look at the people I've had to deal with so far, judges and convicts. This is a big thing, the biggest thing that has ever come my way, the change I should have chosen before all others. I shall pour into it everything I've got, unquote. So, when Winston and Clementine arrived in London, he and McKenna visited each other's staffs and exchanged offices and responsibilities. One aspect of Winston's character that irritated some found its home in the Admiralty. Churchill had a way of being showy, of making everything around him grand, of giving importance to the tiniest thing. But now in charge of the Navy, the senior service, this kind of thing was expected of the first Sea Lord. His vision of himself as a hero, in any story, had found a home. And as the first Sea Lord was expected to do everything first class, Winston's new home, provided by the government, was an 18th century abode with a view of St. James Park. The house was large enough for the Churchills to go from five servants to at least eleven, but Clem would put her foot down and demand a smaller number. Besides the house, Winston also had at his disposal a luxurious steam yacht, the Enchantress. On the Churchill's third cruise aboard her, Clem had set up a meeting between her husband and Kitchener, who was stationed in Egypt, and over a working meal, the feud between the two came to an end. Clementine, obsessing with cost, ruefully moved into the Admiralty's residence, but Winston spent most of his time on the Enchantress, working with Eddie Marsh by his side. More Sundays than not found Winston aboard, working until at least 8 p.m. 
Back in his office at the Admiralty, he had a large map of the North Sea attached to a wall, and every morning when he came in, he stopped to stare at it. On the map were pins which showed the position of each German warship, quote, to inculcate in myself and those working with me a sense of ever-present danger, unquote. And this time, Winston's directness paid off for Britain. As he saw it, Germany was the enemy, the only enemy. It was only a matter of when. So the two-power naval standard, in place since 1889, was to be maintained, certainly now, as Winston considered Germany's navy to be, quote, intended for attack and for fleet action. They are not a cruiser fleet designed to protect colonies and commerce all over the world. They have been preparing for years and continue to prepare for a great trial of strength, unquote. Readying oneself for combat is one thing. Obviously, it is far preferable that the battle never takes place. So Haldane, a barrister known to be well-read in German philosophy, was sent to Berlin in early 1912. In February, Haldane was at the Wilhelmstrasse, Winston, back in London. But the first sea lord was better informed than his colleague in Berlin. Churchill managed to get a copy of a text that the Kaiser would make public in May. In it was his pledge to make Germany the mightiest on land and sea. So when the Kaiser gave his speech, which clearly paved the way for his May announcement, Winston did not wait. He did not contact Haldane, but told the world, quote, This island has never been, and never will be, lacking in trained and hardy mariners, bred from their boyhood up in the service of the sea. We will face the future as our ancestors would have faced it, without disquiet, without arrogance, but in stolid and inflexible determination. Unquote. But behind closed doors, Winston expressed his confusion with the Germans. Quote, the British Navy is to us a necessity, and from some points of view, the German Navy is to them more in the nature of a luxury. Unquote. In other words, did the Germans really understand the game they were playing and the threat it posed to Britain? The Tories and the Germans expressed frustration between the statements of Haldane trying to win German support for talks and Winston's statement of being ready to resist no matter who lined up against them. But when Haldane returned to London, he expressed his gratitude to Winston. His harsher words made Haldane's carrot more attractive. In short, Berlin got served a little British good cop, bad cop. Not that it did much good. Haldane brought back Germany's offer. Britain could rule the oceans. Germany would not challenge this by starting a planned massive construction project in May if Britain stayed on the side, if war broke out between Germany and France. The Kaiser had become paranoid and saw France trying to find allies to encircle Germany. Only by obtaining a large navy and perhaps striking first could the Second Reich be saved. And in between this plan and victory sat the Royal Navy and Winston Churchill. The former was large and powerful, the latter confident in Britain's ability to persevere until victory was obtained. But there were cracks within the Royal Navy, to be sure. The civilians in the brass did not get along or respect each other. Admiral Sir Arthur Wilson 
twice Winston's age, was the first Sea Lord, under Winston, of course, and dominated the service with his personality, which normally may have been fine, but Winston's own persona was about to stretch out a bit, and Wilson was very much not keen on the changes that new technology offered. Any contest with the German Navy would be monumental, and the British needed every advantage they could get. And Churchill did not think Wilson was therefore the man for the coming war. So he sacked Wilson. But then he realized he had no one with sufficient gravitas currently under the colors to take the post. So, reaching a bit into Britain's past, Churchill sent for Admiral Sir John Jackie Fisher. Fisher had retired four years ago, but during his height had completely revamped the Royal Navy, bringing it into the modern age. Between 1904 and 1910, Fisher removed obsolete ships, fought up the dreadnought, encouraged submarines, and underlined all of this by updating the naval educational system. The British people loved him, the greatest sailor since Nelson, with his flashes of brilliance, but which were balanced out by his temper. If a naval clash came, Germany would be trading punches with the Royal Navy, in Fisher's image. And most people who knew of matters naval felt better for it. But Winston couldn't bring Fisher in as his number two man. The old sea dog had made many enemies during his years of changing an institution that prided itself on its traditions. But Winston and Fisher spoke constantly, and Winston instituted almost all of Fisher's ideas. Churchill even put people into key spots that Fisher recommended. So under Winston would be Admiral Sir Francis Bridgman, and under him would be Prince Louis of Badenburg. But his German accent would necessitate him stepping down once the war was underway. Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, another Fisher suggestion, would be second in command of the home fleet. At first, Winston and Fisher hit it off. Churchill was curious about everything, and Fisher loved explaining things. Their first official meeting lasted, with necessary breaks, for three days, and Fisher picked up where he left off four years ago. The ships had to be bigger, faster, and carry larger guns. Britain would need oil reserves if war came, and Winston, taking this as his cue, asked for and got five million pounds to purchase a ready supply from the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Thanks largely to Fisher, when war did come, Winston knew what he was doing. He knew, quote, what everything looked like and where everything was and how one thing fitted into another. I could put my hand on anything that was wanted and knew the current state of our naval affairs, unquote. Which was indeed fortunate for Britain by 1914, because the military men of Britain much like of other countries, were resisting technology. Douglas Haig believed the machine gun to be, quote, a much overrated weapon, unquote. Joffre of France wouldn't even use a telephone because he claimed he did not, quote, understand the mechanism, unquote. Kitchener described the tank as a toy. But Churchill was not perfect either. He pushed for the Zeppelin, but then lost interest. So Britain went into the war without reconnaissance aircraft. He also failed to envision, and therefore implement, adequate submarine defenses at Scapa Flow and the Firth of Forth. 
But when it came to flying, Winston, like Mussolini, was swept away. And not just by the idea of defying gravity. He saw the importance of flight in battle back in 1909. So, bringing this latest and perhaps greatest invention into his overall plan, in 1912 he started the Royal Naval Air Force Service, which one day would become the RAF. Surrounding himself with young men who would lead the way in naval aviation, Winston spent every minute he could up in the air, defying gravity and Clementine's wishes. Everyone knew how dangerous flying still was at this time, Veterans died, instructors crashed on landings, but still, Winston would use his power to go up ten times a day in various models. And thanks to his enthusiasm, the British were the first to attach a machine gun to a plane and launch an airborne torpedo. Ironically, the pilots around him thought Winston was too old. At age 38, he was six years beyond what they thought was the maximum age for a man to pilot a plane. And for almost every time he went up, a letter from Cat arrived, begging him not to do it again. If we can just pull back for a moment, forgetting Winston's amazing career, all he has done, is doing, and will do in the future, just picture for a moment the man we have all come to know enjoying these adventures. The inner child, not far from the surface, was having the time of his life. He honestly didn't mean to upset his wife. It's just that he found something dear to his adventurer's heart. On May 29, 1914, he wrote belatedly to his wife, quote, I have been at the Central Flying School for a couple of days, flying a little in good and careful hands and under perfect conditions. So I did not write you from there, as I knew you would be vexed, unquote. Vexed was completely inadequate, for what Cat was, she wrote back, quote, It's like beating one's head against a stone wall, unquote. Still, Winston continued on so. That is, until he received a letter from Clementine that she had had a horrible nightmare about him, and every telegram that came to her, she just knew, was to inform her of his death. But now, she had an ace up her sleeve. Cat was five months pregnant when this letter went out. It would be another girl, her name Sarah. Finally, Winston was shaken out of his delightful reverie. He wrote back, quote, My darling one, I will not fly any more until, at any rate, you have recovered from your kitten, unquote. Back to work, the arms race continued. Winston kept asking for more money for the Navy, while the Kaiser simply made it happen. But Churchill tried other tactics. In April of 1912, he offered up an idea of a naval holiday in where both nations would stop laying new keels. Wilhelm was not interested. In October of 1913, he offered Germany the idea of a shipbuilding stoppage altogether. His argument was that all this money was being wasted, if no war came, on nothing, and if war did come, it would be horrendous. Berlin didn't even bother with a reply. So, at the end of 1913, Winston submitted what he believed he would need for the following year. And that was just over 50 and a half million pounds. The largest in the world at the time. As one can expect, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lloyd George, was shocked by this number. The two were still friends, 
but no longer brothers in arm against the conservative world. Winston was focused on the defense of Britain, Lloyd George, the people within the British Empire. The cabinet saw the validity of both sides, and so looked to Asquith. He let Winston have his way, but soon something would have to give, or someone would have to go. To show how far apart the two former colleagues were, Lloyd George said publicly, on January 1, 1914, that Winston's budget violated Lord Randolph's memory. That cut Winston to the bone, as Lloyd George knew it would. But Churchill refrained from any direct clash by saying he would not give interviews while this most important debate was still underway. This was getting the party in power nowhere. So the former friends, now antagonists, sat down and talked for five hours. They were soon joined by the Prime Minister, who eventually sided with Winston in protecting the home island. Still, the Chancellor needed to save face. So, 2% of the estimated budget would be cut. The story that was put out went like this. Winston was invited to Number 11 Downing Street, the home of the Exchequer, for breakfast. While eating, Lloyd George told Winston that his wife said to him, Let, quote, that nice Mr. Churchill, unquote, have his dreadnoughts. It was better to have too many as opposed to too few. So, I have decided to let you build them, unquote. Winston put his budget proposal to the House. The Liberals were just as shocked as Lloyd George had been, the Tories ecstatic. Conservative newspapers praised Winston. The Tories applauded his courage to stand up to his own party. Obviously, this was praise Winston didn't need. But behind his back, the Tories whispered, this was all about Winston's desire for glory. Again, Winston just couldn't win. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Churchill needed to prove to his party, and perhaps to himself, that he was a liberal and all that meant. But he couldn't just say it. He had been saying it. He needed to show it. And that meant finding the right issue. It couldn't be the war that may never come. It couldn't be making Britain's military the most advanced in the world. It had to be something that pulled on heartstrings, something that involved patriotism, something the Tories would hate and the left love. And it came to him, or rather, the 84 Irish nationalist MPs brought it to him. In return for helping with neutering the House of Lords, they wanted the issue, their issue, of home rule brought back to the forefront. The problem, though, was this. Ulster, the nine counties around Belfast in Northern Ireland, was made up of mostly Protestants. If home rule became a law, Ireland would be controlled by a parliament in Dublin. And as the majority of the island was Catholic, it was only a matter of time before the Protestants had their rights stripped away. So they, the Ulsters, would rather fight and die than see home rule become a reality. However, the Irish MPs 
had been tolerant of the liberals to bring this issue up since they had taken power in 1906. They had waited long enough. Asquith, nor anyone else, really wanted to touch this hopeless issue, because there was no middle ground, no negotiation was possible. But Winston was Lord Randolph's son, so Churchill soon found himself the Liberals' point man, and he hoped this would be the issue to settle his jittery Liberal comrades. Going back a bit, in October of 1911, Winston said, quote, Next year, we propose to introduce the Home Rule Bill, and we propose to carry it forward with all our strength. Unquote. He then announced he would be speaking in Belfast's Ulster Hall, where his father had spoken, next February of 1912. The trip was a complete disaster. Clementine decided to go along with him, hoping her gender would reduce the chance of violence. In this, she was very much wrong. During their journey over, women stood outside their cabin and shouted non-stop, Votes for women! Little sleep was gotten. The car was harassed all the way to the hotel. The lobby was just as dangerous as the street. Thousands of soldiers were used to try to keep the Churchill safe, but it was clear that Winston would not be speaking at Ulster Hall. Instead, his speech was given at Celtic Park in the Falls neighborhood. But even then, it rained all during his speech. So much for swaying a crowd. As the Churchills left, they were given blackthorns, or walking sticks, as in to say, we're sorry you went through all that for nothing. But then, on the gangplank, they had rotten fish thrown at them. The journey started badly, only got worse, and ended up with them stinking and carrying large sticks. One of the dominating reasons the issue grew even more dangerous was that the House of Lords stalled the passage of the Home Rule Bill introduced, and that was passed by the House of Commons in April of 1912. To overcome this, the Liberals had to pass the measure in three consecutive sessions. So, by the summer of 1914, the proposal was still waiting passage. Winston would go on being the point man for this issue, talking to whomever had an idea or moderate proposal. But in the end, neither side was willing to give something to get something. So, it was all in vain. And still, the issue deteriorated political stability. The Ulsters had started the Ulster Volunteer Force and were soon heavily armed when a German vessel left the port of Hamburg carrying thousands of rifles and two and a half million rounds of ammo and sailed out into the night, offloaded the cargo to another ship that ended up in the harbor of Larn. By March of 1914, the third and final passage of the Home Rule Bill was just under two months away, and because of this, tension was higher than ever before. There would be war, whether civil war or rebellion, how it was titled was only semantics. It was clear that soon the streets would be running with blood. Asquith proposed that Ulster be allowed to vote itself out of the agreement for six years. But the response from Belfast was, this was nothing more than, quote, a sentence of death with a stay of execution for six years, unquote. And this was certainly true. That same month, Winston, as first sea lord, was going to reinforce the naval presence off Northern Ireland. When the army found out about this, massive resignations were threatened. 
Asquith had to pull Churchill's orders back, saying it was a misunderstanding. The Tories laughed over the missteps. The liberals and Irish nationalists were humiliated and angered. On April 28th, in the House of Commons, the issue was once again discussed and debated, the air thick with anger and anticipation. Winston brought up the smuggled rifles and the Ulster Volunteer Force, but the Tories refused to understand his dilemma. Then Winston and Carson, who represented the Ulsters, exchanged verbal blows. Churchill explained his position, quote, I wish to make it perfectly clear that if rebellion comes, we shall put it down, and if it comes to civil war, we shall do our best to conquer in the civil war. But there will never be rebellion nor civil war unless it is of your making, unquote. Churchill then reined in his aggressive stance and tone, quote, the right honorable gentleman is running great risks and strife. Why will he not run some risk for peace? The key is in his hands now. Why cannot the right honorable and learned gentleman say boldly, give me the amendments to this home rule bill, which I ask for to safeguard the dignity and the interest of Protestant Ulster. And I in return will use all my influence and goodwill to make Ireland an integral unit in a federal system. Unquote. The House subsided. Other men spoke and agreed with the First Sea Lord. Talks again resumed. Churchill was trying to save the situation, but was also trying to save himself. But would it work? The answer was no. Winston's words had generated goodwill, but not enough to overcome the momentum that had already been built. Winston, accepting this, said, quote, A little red blood had got to flow. We shall give no provocation. Unquote. And on May 26th, the Home Rule Bill passed for the third and final time. It was now law. Of course, this changed nothing. Each side was waiting for the other to fire the first shot. Hoping to do some good, the King called all interested parties to Buckingham Palace on July 20th. The talks went on for four days. At the end, Asquith's cabinet met on July 24th to list what had been accomplished. They all stared at blank paper. It seemed there would be bloodshed. As the meeting was about to break up, Winston, still focused on creating some compromise, missed the beginning of a note being read out by another minister. Slowly, the words coming to his ears and their meaning started pushing out his thoughts of Ulster rifles, and Belfast. The note being read by the Foreign Secretary Gray was an ultimatum. It was from Austria to Serbia, and its tone and conditions were so extreme, Winston knew there would not be, could not be, any satisfaction given. Suddenly, his mind went from picturing Northern Ireland to Central Europe. The stage and the players strutting upon it had grown significantly. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just want to let you know that the, the contest for the coffee mug, the Churchill coffee mug, is coming up soon. I'll probably do that the week of the 17th, probably two episodes away, and I'll get my daughters in here because they enjoy that. Uh, so please don't hesitate to send me an email if you want to join. It's uh, The email is wwiipodcast at gmail. 
com and just put contest in the subject line. If you don't mind, it would just make it a lot easier. I think I've gotten 50 entries so far, so we're just going to have a lot of fun with this. So in case you missed it, the first time, it's a it's a coffee mug with a picture of Churchill looking none too happy. And on the other side, it says, don't worry, Winston wasn't a morning person either. So it's really cute. It's a lot of fun. Uh, please enter. I just want to do something exciting and a lot of fun for the, for the end of the year. So please send me those emails as soon as you can. Um, also, the tour is finally done. Um, the... Information on the website will be up soon. Paul Finch, my tech guru, is on a little mini break, but as soon as he's back, I'll have him put it up there. But I do have the email address. If you have any questions, it's all set up. It's ready to go. Dates, prices, uh, er- everything that you would need. Uh, please send an email to tours at worldwariipodcast.net. The World War is spelled out, and then you have iipodcast.net. That's the, uh, it's the educational world travel. They're handling it. Uh, they do this kind of stuff all the time. They're going to take good care of us. And as far as I know, I think there's already seven people signed up. So this is going to happen. Uh, I can't wait to see as many of you as I can next year. We're going to go to London, to Portsmouth, to Paris. Um, but, of course, in no particular order, uh, Bletchley Park, Blenheim, uh, the Churchill War Room. We're going to cross the channel, go to Utah Beach, and of course see the Eiffel Tower, the Champs Elysees, the Memorial Museum. Uh, we're going to go to Luxembourg, see a part of the Maginot Line, and end up in Belgium. So it's going to be absolutely amazing. I'm going to take tons of pictures, and I'll turn that into an episode so I can show everybody. But please, uh, if you're interested, just follow that email or send me an email, and I'll send it on for you. And the um, itinerary should be up on the website soon. It's going to be, uh, I think, 10 days long, and it's going to start um, uh, the 1st of October. So the information will be up soon. So thank you for everybody who's been asking. We are almost there. So now I would like to say hello to my latest members, um, Caitlin O. from Boston, um, Brendan G. from Fallbrook, California, and Matthew R. from Janesville, Wisconsin. Uh, and just to let everyone know, if you do sign up for the tour, I do know that members of the podcast get a $300 discount, and you'll be able to find all that good stuff out once it's on the website and if you send an email to that address I gave you. Um, as for the people who made donations, again, I just want to say thank you. A lot of books uh, being purchased on this end. Um, Catherine P.D. from Somerset, U.K., uh, she, she donated. And her husband, Robert D., has sent me some photos from Normandy. So I'm even more excited to go there because they were amazing, Robert, and I can't wait to take my own. And then there's Claus F. from Denmark who sent in a donation. Thank you very much. And Daniel B., from Williston, Vermont. So thank you to everybody. I really do appreciate it. And just um, just to be really annoying, I have a huge surprise that's coming for you. Um, you would never guess it in a million years. So I can't really talk about it yet because it's not quite ready, but I think you're going to like it a lot. And as, and as soon as I can announce it, I certainly will. So hello to the new members. Thank you, everyone, for the donations. Please send an email to the... Um, to the tour email address if you have any questions and I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode and hopefully I can announce the surprise as soon as I can. Take care everyone and may the fates play fair.